0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, the rain has stopped in Los Angeles and today is bright and sunny. What you're about to hear is a talk I gave um, last year at Cal Poly Pomona to a comparative religions class on basic Buddhism. It's mostly uh, questions and answers, so I hope you find this format interesting and useful. Without further introduction, this is my talk at Cal Poly Pomona in 2007 to a comparative religions class on Buddhism. Now I don't know how much you've studied already. I I, I get a feeling this is towards the end of your classes on religion, and you may have already read a chapter or two on Buddhism, and so the question I have is, do you have any questions on Buddhism before I get started? Because I can talk a really long time, but it may not be what you want to hear. So if somebody has questions, uh, I would be happy to uh, see if I have any answers for those. And if you don't have any questions, maybe I could ask you some questions, and you could give me some answers. And then I could see if your understanding parallels my understanding. So the first question I would have for everybody would be, are Buddhists atheists? Does anybody have any feelings or thoughts on that? Um, do we believe in God, being a Buddhist? We don't believe in God. We have a nod, a, a no nod right there. Okay. Do anybody else think we don't believe in God? Is that the consensus of the class, that Buddhists don't believe in God? Okay, well, you're so kind and courteous, I don't see any responses coming. Okay, well, let me, let me thank you for nodding. That gives me a starting point. Um, Buddhists have the option of believing in God, if they want to. So it's not necessary, if you're a Buddhist, to believe in God. Did the Buddha believe in God? The answer is yes. The Buddha believed in the gods small g-s, of India. Um, And he was a theist until he died. He never became an atheist. But there was one problem he found with believing in the gods of India. There was one thing he found that they couldn't do. And the one thing they couldn't do or wouldn't do was to end human suffering. Now, I imagine, in my mind, that maybe on one full moon night in May, in India, he looked to the skies and petitioned the gods of India to intervene and end human suffering. And he waited for an answer or a sign, and nothing happened. And he petitioned again. He had just been into the streets of the city with his charioteer, Chana. He had just seen a really old guy, a really sick guy, a really dead guy, a really holy guy. He had seen those four things. He would become aware of how much suffering human beings go through. And he petitioned the gods he had believed and prayed to his whole life to step forward and end human suffering. And not one of them did. And I think, in my mind, at that point, he said to himself, I guess I'm going to have to do it my way. I guess I'm going to have to figure out a way to end my suffering, because the gods aren't going to help me. And at the age of 29, he left his family in the care of his parents, and for six years he practiced. He practiced meditation, he practiced asceticism, he practiced renunciation, And at the end of those six years, he achieved his full perfection as a human being. That was at the age of 35. Now, according to the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, he had been reborn as a bodhisattva at least 550 previous lifetimes, according to the Jataka tales. So this wasn't something that happened simply in one lifetime. This was an evolution of practice, understanding, wisdom, and compassion. And so at the age of 35, his journey ended. His journey ended in nirvana. Did he still believe in the gods of India? Yes. But he did something they wouldn't do. He ended his own suffering. And for 45 years, he taught other human beings who were interested in how to end their suffering. And so today we have something called Buddhism. The Buddha was a Hindu and died a Hindu. In the same way, Christ was a Jew and died a Jew. But after he died, 18 separate schools of Buddhism arose within 30 or 40 years after his death. Because they were unclear on what he really meant. And some schools said he meant this and some schools said he meant that. And today, out of those 18 separate schools that arose after the death of the Buddha, only one school of the original 18 exists today. And that school is called Theravada Buddhism. Theravada means doctrine of the elders. And most of my understanding of Buddhism is rooted in that early Buddhist school of Theravada. Even though I'm ordained in the Mahayana Zen tradition, So I tell people that I think like a Catholic and dress like a Protestant. Uh, Typically American, I suppose, in my approach to religion. Did the Buddha ever talk about how the world started? Is there a Genesis myth in Buddhism? Anybody, yay, nay, don't know? Okay, well, let me go into that. We do not have a first cause in Buddhism. But we do have the evolution of humankind in Buddhism. That is found in a sutta. A sutta is a talk talk that the Buddha gave. There was a group of suttas, a group of talks called the Diga Nikaya. Those are the long length sayings. It's Diga Nikaya number 27, if you're at all interested. And he talks about how the universe contracted and expanded. Contracted and expanded. And then there was simply water or fluid on the earth. And then that turned into land and water. But at that point, we weren't humans yet, according to Deganikai number 27. Interesting stuff, huh? We We were simply radiant beings, luminous beings, living on bliss and happiness. That's all the food we needed. But then, then we decided to taste the earth and imagine a giant finger coming down and tasting the earth and we became coarser and coarser eventually we divided into men and women up until that point we were sort of all the same just generic luminous beings when we finally divided into men and women passion and lust arose and the women wanted to be intimate with the men and the men wanted to be intimate with the women According to Diga number 27. And then they became intimate, but they became intimate out in the open. And people started to throw rocks and stones at them, saying, How could you do such disgusting things to each other's body? What drives you to that? And those beings who were involved in lust and sexual activity decided to make houses so they could have sex inside rather than outside. So that's how the first condos started, according to Buddhism. But anyway, it goes on and on and on, but I I just love that story. Yes? Um, What does Theravada mean? Theravada means doctrine of the elders. But even in Diga Nikaya number 27, there's no first cause. It just talks about after it's been created, the world expands and contracts. So, if you're a Buddhist, it is okay to believe that God created the world. And I know many Buddhists who believe that. It's also okay to think that maybe there was a Big Bang Theory, which for me is a, a little more interesting. It's a longer read. And then, if you're a Buddhist, it's okay to believe that the flying spaghetti monster was the first cause. Which is a wonderful website if you haven't been there. And, and so we have great flexibility as a Buddhist. These, these questions of origin and creator don't mean as much to us as they do to some other religions because the answers to those questions will not end our suffering. They'll just give us more stuff to think about and talk about. Okay, yes? So was the
1: Buddha himself uh, just a very... Evolved type of human being, or was I? Don't, I don't want to say like a prophet because that doesn't really work. Yeah, but, and then also, uh, was he really
0: as fat as the statues making? him seem? Okay, <laughs> great question. Uh, okay, the first the first question is, was he an evolved, involved, evolved human being? Was he was he more than say the other people? And I would say probably yes. I would say he probably had deeper insights into the reality of his life than other people did. He also had the advantage of being born into uh, the, uh, pardon me, the warrior caste. So he, was, he, he came from a warrior background. Anybody see 300 yet? Okay, how about those warriors, huh? They died in glory, died in battle. Isn't that so cool? They ate breakfast in hell. Wow, those are some tough guys. Well, the Buddha came from that caste. Oh, they killed them, threw them away. Yeah. They wouldn't make good warriors. And, uh, and the Spartan women were strong, too, because they had Spartan men. So everybody in this community, they were a warrior community. It was a pretty uh, amazing thing. Uh, but, you know, your death was determined by who you were fighting. You know, it wasn't determined by you know, what you wanted to do in life, or did you have rights and could you be like an entrepreneur? You know, you were a warrior and you were trained to die in war. And that was the best death you could get. So the Buddha came from something like that. But do you know what's remarkable about the Buddha coming from a warrior caste? Is he found the enemy not outside but inside. He found the greed and the lust and the hatred and delusion as being the greatest enemy to humankind. And he, he waged war against that, against those adversaries, and won. He extinguished them. I don't want to say he killed them, but he extinguished them. Wow, how cool, I became a perfect human being. So he had certain advantages that a lot of other people in his, in his culture, society, city, state didn't have. So he had that. But he also he seemed to have a, a greater sense of compassion and wisdom than other folks and, and self-reflection. And, and I think that led him into the streets of the city for, and where he saw the old guy, sick guy, dead guy, holy guy. And I think that woke him up to a certain extent. It woke him up to the fact that this life was ultimately unsatisfactory and could he do something about that? Around what year was he born? He was born about 500 years before Christ. That's that's what people like to say. 500 years before Christ. Um, So I, I think he was a special person in that way. And became more special, he became a fully realized human being. And there aren't too many of those walking around. Fully realized human beings. So could you call Buddhism secular humanism? You could. Could you call Buddhism atheism? No. Could you call Buddhism non-theistic? God is optional? Yes. What was the second part? I forgot. Yes. Was the Buddha fat? No, he was a skinny guy. So why do we have this image of the fat Buddha? Well, that came from China. And that's a hotai. That's not actually a Buddha. That's a hotai. And, And it's from their culture, and it's good luck. And why is that image fat? Because he was an aristocrat. He had plenty to eat. And in China, a long time ago, a lot, well, maybe even today, I don't know, a lot of folks didn't have enough to eat. So their aspiration was to have plenty to eat. So that was a, a good sign for them. That was a good symbol. And he was happy all the time. you know. And, and if you go to a Chinese restaurant, it's good to pat his head or pat his you know uh, his tummy and, and then say a wish. It might come true. But that's not the Buddha. That's something else. Thanks for that question. Though. I'll close it up. Any, in, any more questions about that? Okay, let me ask you another question. A couple weeks ago, there was a terrible shooting in Virginia at a university. And do you think that was karma that caused that shooting? Do you think a Buddhist would say, oh, it was their karma, and that's why they all got killed? Do you think a Christian might say, oh, it was their sin, and that's why they all got killed? Yeah. Well, I don't think so either. But you know when, this, when the tsunami hit a couple years ago and Thailand got you know, lots a lot of people, I heard a Buddhist scholar say it was their karma. It was their collective karma. And that's why the tsunami hit Thailand. Well, let me tell you what I think about that. I think that's incorrect. And if you study early Buddhism, what you find is something called the five niyamas, the five reasons stuff happened. Now, has anybody watched My Name is Earl? Okay, nobody's thought Okay, gosh, you guys. I mean, you can go online and actually watch the latest episode. So it's, it's a lot of fun because it's all about karma. You know, Earl realized he had bad karma, and Carson Daly had good karma. So he wanted to change his karma. So he went back and righted the wrongs of his past unskillful activities. He had a just legal notepad. He wrote down the names of all the people he was unkind to. And each episode, he's righting the wrongs. And it's such a clever show. But they're using karma in a very unique way. It's, for me, what they're saying is, is you've got to take responsibility for your life. If your life isn't good, it's nobody else's fault but yours. So what can you do to make it better? How can you change your karma? But karma is not the only thing that's important in why stuff happens. So the five niyamas. The first niyama is natural laws. For instance, gravity. If you trip and fall down, gravity has a lot to do with falling down. Now, that banana peel might have something to do as well, and your lack of mindfulness might have something to do with it as well. But gravity played a very important role in you falling down. And sometimes when tsunamis happen, there's a plate shift going on in Earth, and we could say that's sort of like a natural phenomenon. It's the expansion and contraction of Earth, and the gravity affects that, and so the first reason why stuff happens is natural laws of cause and consequence. The second reason stuff happens is biology, genes and chromosomes, according to Buddhism. Now thinking about some of the students that lost their lives, was it their genes and chromosomes that led to their demise that day? Probably not. But could we say maybe it was because their parents gave birth to them in that area of the country and felt that this was a really good school to send their children to, that there is something to do with biology or genes and chromosomes that led them to that school. And if you had been born in Uruguay, you may never have been to America and couldn't go to that school. So maybe, just maybe, genes and chromosomes, biology, had a little bit to do with it. Don't know. Third reason stuff happens is karma. This is the moral aspect in Buddhism. We do not have right and wrong in Buddhism. Now that might sound like a rather uh, profound statement to make because our whole world seems to be divided into right and wrong, good and bad. But you know what Buddhism lacks that Christianity doesn't? A divine lawgiver who decides what is right and what is wrong. We don't have that. We have nobody that stepped forward and said, I will now proclaim what is right and what is wrong. We have instead karma, cause and consequence. We have skillful and unskillful. We have more suffering and less suffering. So karma is the moral element Was I skillful? Did my unskillful intention, speech, and action lead me into a situation that was more uncomfortable rather than less uncomfortable? Did I experience suffering today because I was unskillful? Or did I experience a really good day today because I was skillful and said the right things, did the right things in the sense of being skillful, and thought the right things, in the sense of being skillful. So we look at karma as being an important aspect of why things happen. Karma is defined this way, everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. That is karma. The results of everything we think, everything we say, everything we do is vipaka, according to the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada. Kama, vipaka are Pali words. Pali is the canonical language of early Buddhism. Karma, vipaka, cause, and consequence. Pardon? Is that number four? No, that's number three. Uh, Number four. Number four is Dharma. D H A R M A. I am using Dharma in this way. (laughs) Our religious practice, whatever your religious practice is, affects what happens to you, good or bad, but it does have an effect. Finally, number five, the last reason why stuff happens, mind. The, world, the, the Buddha said, this world of ours is mind-made. We make up our life every day, every moment. We're writing a story of our life. Now, you may not agree with that, but I think it's a rather interesting concept that my reality is determined to a very large extent because of how I perceive it, and more importantly, how I conceive it. Perception, conception. How do I evaluate? How do I critique those moments in my life? Why are they good or bad? Why are they happy or unhappy? Why are they beautiful or not beautiful? What is that part of me that writes that story? What is it based on? Is it based on past experience? Is it based on my education? Is it based on my prejudice? Is it based on my need to succeed? What? Why am I looking at the world the way I do? You know, uh, one of the books that came out a long time ago, I think it's the '80s, was called um, Cultural Literacy and I found this concept fascinating that we are products of our culture and you know one of the stories that they talked about in that book was George Washington cutting down the cherry tree and I remember that as being one of my favorite stories and then he went on to say that it never happened that George Washington never cut down the cherry tree it was just a story that had a good moral and I'm thinking everybody lied to me why did they lie to me in that way and then I thought about my culture lying to me all the time. Was it in conspiracy against me? You know, did my parents always tell me the truth? Well, maybe so, but maybe not. We had the Easter Bunny, we had Santa Claus, come on. Where do they live? Why did they feel the need to lie? And did that shape the way I related to the world around me? Absolutely. Am I a product of my culture? absolutely am I free do I have free choice absolutely not I'm in the prison of my culture I'm in the prison of who I think I am Buddhism is designed to make you free anybody see the matrix Neo he became free he woke up what did the Buddha do the Buddha woke up what does the word Buddha mean one who wakes up how cool is that So our job as a Buddhist is to wake up. To wake up out of the dream of the story of our life. You know? And sometimes people through meditation or religious practice seem to wake up for just a short time. And then they roll over and go back to sleep. And if you remember the Matrix, there was that one fellow who did wake up, but wanted to go back to sleep. Because he didn't like reality the way it was. He wanted to pretend he was eating steak rather than porridge. He wanted to pretend he was successful rather than a failure. And that only happened when he slept, not when he was awake. Those five aspects, we have natural laws, we have biology, we have karma, we have dharma, we have mind. Those things working together make stuff happen. One of those things cannot make stuff happen. It's always in a combination that things happen. We do not have one in Buddhism. We don't have that concept. We come from a hierarchy of gods, polytheism. I know one is the best number, one nation under one God. But when I was your age, I'm 58 now, One was the loneliest number that you ever heard. I know I can't sing, but I still like that song. So, yes?
1: Is it possible, the way Buddhism is made, is it possible, let's say, Christian and Buddhist?
0: No. And I'll tell you why. In July, I will be going to St. John's Abbey. Anybody ever heard of St. John's Abbey? It's in Collegeville, Minnesota. It's a Benedictine monastery. 150 years old they have 80 full time monastics living there practicing and praying every day they have a university right next door with hundreds of university students practicing and getting good grades and i was invited to speak about why i'm a buddhist and interreligious dialogue how important is interreligious dialogue the thing i have found by being involved with interreligious dialogue is we have to honor the differences Their differences are very apparent when you get into deep discussions with other religions. Now, this past October, I went to St. John's for the first time, and we had 15 Catholic monks and 15 Buddhist monks talking about celibacy. And I was asked to give the opening presentation for the Buddhists on why Buddhist monastics are celibate. Anybody have any ideas of why we're celibate? Something wrong with sex? What do you think? Anything wrong with sex? You think there's something wrong with sex? It, maybe uh,
1: maybe to, because you renounce anything that gives you, I uh, guess, pleasure. Like
0: okay, worldly things. it's not good to have pleasure, maybe. That's one of the reasons, maybe, okay.
1: Maybe because, like, I don't know if it's, like, right, but in the um, Buddhist uh, thought that, like, it's just giving you fake uh, happiness, I guess.
0: Well, maybe temporary happiness. Mm-hmm. It's not forever happiness. But it seems like real happiness when I'm happy in that way. <laughs> okay. so, <laughs> so let, me, l- let me tell you uh, what I concluded why Buddhist monks and nuns are celibate first thing, simplicity we live in an economy of generosity we live on donations people support us because they're kind if we have a wife and a couple kids we may not get enough donations to support them in the way they're accustomed to. And if I give a Dharma talk and then pass the plate and say, hey, could you put a few more dollars in? We want to go see Spider-Man tonight. They may not give us a few more dollars. So we need to live in a simple way, a way that's supportable by donations. So how do I live, you might say? What do you do? Well. I live at International Buddhist Meditation Center. They gave me a room to live in. The center purchased health insurance for me, so which is a really good thing, so I don't have to die if I get sick. And the center gives me a stipend, uh, an honorarium each month, a little bit of money so I can buy food and socks. Now, sometimes when I give presentations, people give me donations. If I do like a one-day retreat, people might give me a couple hundred dollars for talking and leading retreats and stuff like that. How cool is that? But it's not enough to really have any kind of life. You know, uh, my car, though I brought the motorcycle today, my car is a Suzuki Swift I found on Craigslist, list, $1,475. It runs. It's almost comfortable. Cool. So when you're living on donations, you have to make certain concessions. You have to decide... Mercedes-Benz, Suzuki Swift. Yes. So,
1: how are you able to see 300?
0: How am I able to? How
1: are you able to see 300? <laughs>
0: how, I, I missed a lot.
1: How are you able to see 300?
0: Oh, how was I able to see 300? Yeah. I went to the matinee. Oh, okay. at half price. <laughs> okay. See, I, I I didn't go in, at night. I went to see that. So <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I have a question.
1: If the Buddhists, um, you guys believe in the reincarnation of yeah. you know, through nirvana, you can escape
0: that? Yeah. Right? yeah.
1: So what happens after you reach nirvana?
0: Okay. That's such a perfect question. But I haven't given you a second reason why we're celibate. Okay. <laughs> the first reason we're celibate is because we want to have a simple life. The second reason we're celibate is because we want to be free. Now, that may be a radical concept to you. But if you're in relationship, you are not free. You might be satisfied. You might be happy. You might be in love. But you're not free. What's that? Free, um, free to view the world in a realistic way. Free from attachments and desires and craving. And I know most people that are in a relationship have some desire have some craving. Sometimes there's codependency that goes on. They they feel more whole when they're with their partner than if they're alone. And those are all good things. We're we're sort of programmed to go in that direction because we need more people. I mean, it may not seem like it right now because we have quite a few people in the world, but, but you know, uh, the, the energy of creation will not be denied. I take care of the koi pond at our center. For the last three days, they have been mating, It is a mess. (laughs) I work every day on that koi pond. Cleaning, changing the water, feeding. For three days, they've had an orgy. (laughs) And I go out there and look at all my hard work right down the drain. I'm thinking, why couldn't they be celibate? My job would be so much easier. So, free. Free in the ultimate sense. Free from even who you think you are.
1: I thought that's what um, you it to from the inside, um, I mean, you said something about the, you asked about the original Buddha yeah. and that's what he struggled with his whole life Yeah. So, so
0: ideally it's kind of hard you never really reach that point uh, you never really reach the point of being free yeah
1: so as far as the
0: life, the life. okay oh, this is a good <laughs> question too thank you well it's really hard to be free because you even have to go beyond being a Buddhist you have to go beyond being a guy or a gal That's really hard to get past. Because we're sort of, you know, from the beginning, we were sort of programmed to be guys and gals. We were programmed to be human beings. We were given the gift of self reflection. No other animal has that. We can analyze our day. We have past and future. The dogs I take care of have no past and future. They're just right there in the present moment, and usually hungry. You know, and I feed them, and now they're happy. And life is good. But humans have goals, you know. We have so many regrets in the past and so many hopes for the future, and we're stuck in the present moment too, just like the dog. So it's freedom from all of that.
1: Who's not in here now? I thought
0: that in here now. It's all about being here now. It's all about being in the present moment. But it is so difficult to be here because our mind doesn't like that. It's too boring. Our mind is always anticipating what might happen so it can keep us alive you know and so meditation is the point in our practice where we come to the present moment experience of our life I oftentimes teach meditation is sensation of breath that sensation of breath that you're focusing on when you're meditating is always happening right now if you can bring your mind to that sensation you're in the present moment most cool what do you find when you're in the present moment you find smell sound sight taste touch And thinking. That's all you find. But then this ego we have takes all that information and creates a story. And we could be the victim or the victor. We have all sorts of players coming and going in our story. You know? uh, It's just an amazing thing that the ego does to give us a life. And the Buddhist, the practicing meditator, would say, I don't want to live that lie anymore. I don't want to be in the matrix anymore. I want to wake up and see what's beyond my little self that defines me every day in every way. So it's sort of that kind of freedom. Yes, let me get back here and then I'll yes. You started to I thought you were going to answer the question of why can't we both Christian and Buddha? And you started to draw a comparison between the months and the Catholic months. Yes. So I wasn't sure you finished answering that. Okay, let me finish answering that and then we'll get to Nirvana in afterlife, and reincarnation. Okay, so, thank you. Sometimes I get carried away. So much to say and so little time to say it. Why can't Buddhists be Catholics? Why can't Buddhists be Presbyterians? I think for me the main reason is we all go to different places when we die. I believe in the diversity of afterlife. I don't think if you're a Christian, you will end up where I'm going. And you might be happy about that. Because you might think I'm going to the wrong place. My ultimate goal is nirvana. As a Buddhist. Nirvana is the end of karma. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Now, I don't know many Christians who would want to do that. To end all future rebirths. Most of the Christians I know are really excited about the fact that heaven exists. And that sounds like a great place to spend eternity. Well, Buddhism, we have heaven as well. We have 31 heavens and we have 31 hells. But none of our heavens and none of our hells is forever. We always have to leave eventually. The only place that is forever in Buddhism is nirvana. The reason nirvana is forever is because it wasn't born. It is uncreated. And because it is uncreated, it is undying. Yes. Does that mean that you have hell to like 31 We have 31 different hells. We have 31 different ways to suffer. And 31 different ways to be happy and blissful. But ultimately, we want to even get past heaven and hell and achieve nirvana. Now, let me tell you what's so cool about nirvana. It took me a long time to figure this out. We do not have reincarnation. In Buddhism, We have something called rebirth in Buddhism. The difference between reincarnation and rebirth is <clears throat> reincarnation requires you to have a soul. We don't have one. So not only are we non-theistic, we can't even say we have a soul. So what's being reborn? Lifetime after lifetime, if you don't have a soul, Reverend Kusala. <clears throat> what's being reborn is karmic energy. The karmic energy we've created in this lifetime transmigrates to the next lifetime. So in the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, it is said when a human being is born, they need, or let's not say born, when a human being is created, there needs to be a sperm, an egg, and karmic energy. Those three things come together, and that's the beginning of human life. We realize that the reason we suffer is because we were born. If we weren't born, we wouldn't get old. If we weren't born, we wouldn't get sick. If we weren't born, we wouldn't die. Everything that is created has to die. Everything. This world is full of creation. We call this world samsara. This is the place where birth and death occur. There was nothing on this world that wasn't born that wasn't created. Buddhism doesn't talk about who the creator was, but we do recognize the fact that it was created. We want to go beyond creation. We want to go beyond birth. I feel, right now, the Buddha is with us. But not in some kind of any spiritual, kind of new age kind of way. He's literally right here, right now. And the reason I can say that is because he wasn't born. His next existence was because of his nirvana, not because of his birth. So our job as a Buddhist is to exist without being born. And when we succeed, we never have to get old, we never have to get sick, and we never have to die. And we call that success nirvana. Does that sort of make sense? A little bit? Okay. So okay, I, uh, So for a Christian, I don't think they'd want to go there. As a Buddhist, we look at heaven and say, well, it might be good, but it's not forever. When I do weddings, I'm going to be doing one coming up in two months, we have a Buddhist guy and a Catholic girl, and they're coming together to get married. And I might say to them, do you realize you may not be able to go and live with each other forever and ever? Is 50 years going to be long enough? They might say, yeah, I guess 50 years is long enough. (laughs) But maybe not. Maybe they want to spend eternity with each other. So then I would encourage them to be of the same religion. So that's why. One of the reasons. I hope that was helpful. Thanks. And did I answer your question on nirvana and reincarnation? Yeah, uh, and rightly so. Because none of us have experienced anything that wasn't born. None of us have experienced anything that wasn't created. So what I'm saying to you is there is something that exists not because of birth. And you go, but, but how, do, how do I relate to that? And I think of my koi pond. Because in the koi pond, we have a turtle. And you know what? That turtle gets to leave. It gets to crawl out of the water breathe the air, eat some of the grass, and go back in. Now, can it explain to the fish what it just did? Because it's such a totally new reality. The fish will never, ever be able to uh, achieve that level of experience because they are fish and he's a turtle. So what we're sort of looking at is there's no way we're ever going to understand nirvana being a human being in the same way the fish can't understand what's outside the pond like a turtle. But we can turn into the turtle, according to Buddhism. We can achieve nirvana. And once that transformation has occurred, then we know. But could I tell you, if I, had, if I have achieved nirvana, could I tell you what it's like not to be in the pond? You would go, but I don't know what that means. What does that mean? And I would go, well, I can't tell you. But I can help you achieve nirvana, and then you'll know too. Sort of like that. Okay. Yeah? Um,
1: when you die, assuming you don't go to nirvana... Does your energy, your karmic energy, go into the next body, like rebirth? Not Yeah, rebirth. Right? Yeah. Okay. So what happens when, like our population is increasing? So yes. Like if there aren't that many souls being with
0: life, Yes. Why is our population increasing on Earth? Exactly. If Is there a fixed number of karmic energies? And if that's the case, why is Earth so overpopulated? Well, one of the reasons I've come to conclude is that maybe a lot of hell beings are being reborn. <laughs> <laughs> because look at the world. This place is tough. We've got a lot of people out there that just don't have a whole lot of wisdom and compassion, causing a lot of suffering for other people. Are they reborn out of heaven? I doubt it. Are they coming back as a human being? Well, maybe some of them. But I think a lot of hell beings are being reborn. Now, I have for one year volunteered at State Prison for Men and five years volunteered for Juvenile Hall, downtown Los Angeles. And the last seven years, I have volunteered as a police chaplain in Garden Grove. And I've seen a lot of hell beings. They're out there. Can the hell beings be transformed into human beings? They sure can. They're not evil, according to Buddhism. They're just really unskillful. They need to learn some new skills. Maybe have a better rebirth next time. So I think it's that way
1: trying to figure out. So let's say in the beginning of time. Okay.
0: Well, now, see, the problem with that is we don't have a beginning.
1: Well, I mean, in the sense that there was only a couple hundred people on the earth, or just a lot less people.
0: Let's say that's like Noah's Ark, then. Sure. Okay. Let's
1: say there's very few people in the world. Uh, And then, let's say there's only a thousand people, and now we have six billion. Yeah. With those just say six billion people come out of your heaven
0: or hell, or were those energies made? Because I'm trying to figure out... Okay. Did those energies come out of nothing? In the... Well, uh, uh, yeah, that that gets pretty tricky when you say it might get out of nothing. In in the Deacon number 27, it said that you had these heaven sort of luminous beings, and when the universe contracted and expanded, some were sent to earth. Some ended up on earth because of the contraction. So it, it might work that way as well. Maybe there are these luminous beings around us, and all of a sudden, well, yeah, well, you know, I've never seen one. I, you know, and so I, I, but it's just like light, just just transparent light. Might think of it that way. And and, nirvana is not. Is that
1: is that God?
0: Like, or is that not God? Like, say, we, we could never say it's God. Why is that you true? could say it's God, because we don't have God in our model. God is optional. Suffering isn't. And so so a Christian might say, well, that's God you're talking about, Kusla. I know it from the way you described it. But as a Buddhist, I could never say that, mm-hmm. because that's not what the Buddha said. Do
1: Buddha you said you
0: believed in many gods? Is like he, exactly. He believed in the many gods of India. So you had gods for the trees and gods of the lakes and, and gods of the crops. And if you wanted your crops to grow, you'd, you'd make sacrifices to the Brahmin caste and they would do the incantations and then the crops would grow and your life would be good. You know, that was before science and that kind of stuff. So it was very magical back then. And things were alive. Everything was alive. The, the mountains were alive and the trees were alive. and They all had spirits. They all had energy. And they were revered. There's some very special trees in India that are still prayed to, still offered to. And so, and we've become so sophisticated now. Everything is so black and white. Everything is, is just science, you know. So we, I think we've lost that magic. But back then, life was very magical. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. And, and Buddhists can't really ever say it's not God, and can't really ever say it is God. Now, Buddhists would have to just have silence at that point. Because we don't have God in our paradigm, in our model, Not, But we don't deny it. We don't. We just don't have it. Did you have a question earlier? Because I saw your hand go up, and now I get over here.
1: Uh-huh, yeah. Um. You kind of like I don't know if you finished.
0: But it's I never finish. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: there was only two reasons why the.
0: Brutus oh yes. Brutus why a Buddhist celibate? Those are the two main reasons. The two main reasons. Yes. This, right? Yes. Now, Okay, um, we take a vow of celibacy so we can't have physical relationships. We can be really good friends. Yeah, we can be really good friends. But, but, But we can't have families or sex. And you know what happens when you don't have sex with people? You can be really good friends. You know, and as soon as you have sex, geez, it complicates things. Doesn't it? It seems to. So I have some very intimate relationships with people because we're not having sex. And we can be honest and sincere with each other we can feel each other's pain and success. And, can't do that.
1: It <laughs> and we can't what? <laughs>
0: you know, my personal opinion is I don't think so. But there are couples, there are couples now that have been married for like a really long time and decided not to have sex and become like brothers and sisters. And, and they're best of friends. Go figure. You know, so... So, is there anything wrong with sex in Buddhism? I suppose we should just get this well-defined. Is there anything wrong with sex in Buddhism? Absolutely not. Sex is wonderful. The problem in Buddhism with sex is the desire for sex. Because that desire can never be satisfied. You can be, you know... We want to end all desire. Nirvana is the end of all desires. And so the Buddha had dancing... Oh, pardon me. Siddhartha, before he became the Buddha, had dancing girls... Had a concubine, got married at 16, had a child at 29, but after he achieved nirvana, he had ended all desire, now all craving, all thirst, and never had sex again. So it leads me to believe that the problem is the desire for sex, you know, because that can't be satisfied. It's like hunger. You're really hungry. You have a great meal. You're hungry again. It goes on for the rest of your life until you die. The Buddha figured out a way to end that desire. That sort of makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I mean, and then I'll go over here.
1: I, I had a question about the Mayans,
0: the five. Yes, the five causes. Um, does it have any relationship with um,
1: the beliefs that the gods that the aspects and the mind believe in? Because three of these are in the calendar, and they also believe that the causes of the things that were happening in the world was due to natural um, laws, <coughs> the mind, and something with um, genetics. Yeah. And in the calendar, I guess if you know how to read the calendar it says like what would happen to the world and supposedly right now we're in the first
0: station of the world and then this station would be like 2012. okay something bad naturally would happen to the world that would cause that I don't know yeah I haven't got the slightest idea <laughs> would that be in Mel Gibson's movie uh, <clears throat> okay I've never studied Mayan culture so I, I don't know but it's interesting that three of those are there so I guess it's a really old culture. Thanks for the question. I wish I had a better answer. But, yeah? Um, the theistic Buddhists, um, they can be
1: monotheistic or polytheistic. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I mean,
0: they, the Buddha I mean, or, or Buddhists? Buddhist, Non-theistic. Uh, oh, the, 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 the Buddha was a polytheist. He, he believed in many gods. But Buddhists today are considered non theistic. All Buddhists. All Buddhists. Buddhism is non theistic. It's not polytheistic, monotheistic, or atheistic. It's non theistic. We don't turn to God for human suffering.
1: But but you said some believe in God.
0: Yes. Some do. Some so do, do. But not because of Buddhism.
1: But if they choose to with
0: Generally speaking, if Buddhists believe in God, it's one God. In America, because it's pretty monotheistic here, you know. Uh, Perhaps in India or other places where polytheism was established, they might believe in more than one God. But I I think if you ask most Americans, is there more than one God? They would say, no way. And if they
1: do, if they do, um, would that God have to be like apathetic or not really involved with human? Human existence. Oh, I see you're responsible for creating the universe, but not really involved in
0: the in Okay, that, yeah, that's, that's really a good question. I'm going to give you sort of a, a, a sharp answer to that question. And it, it, you, you could test it out if, if you believe in God, and you could pray and ask God to end human suffering and just see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if it works, great, because that means I can take a vacation. <laughs> and, and if it doesn't work, well, um, then we've got more work to do. So I think even if you're a monotheist and petition God to end human suffering, you may be disappointed. He or she may be able to do a lot of other things, like create the world. You know?
1: Is it similar to
0: like, is it existentialism? Or, are it, are it I think different? you could probably go there. You could go to existentialism or secular humanism. You know, um, it, it's just you you know you look at the world and you could say and and I'll, I'll say this you may not be able to say this but i might be able to say this how could a loving god let this happen if you looked at google news today or watched the news on tv you just look at the world and everybody's killing each other all the time you know now lebanon is just like going crazy again and They're shooting into the refugee camps because there's supposed to be some terrorists in there and innocent people are being slaughtered and you look at Pakistan and they're going crazy and, of course, Iraq, no words need to be said. And and you just go around the world and you keep looking at all these things. Sudan, starving to death. And you go, how could this happen? What's wrong with our cosmology? You know, where is this divine force that will relieve us from the suffering? But has it always been this way? As a Buddhist, I would have to say absolutely yes. Will it always be this way? I would say yes, it will. And and not because there's anything wrong with God, but because there's something wrong with us. We have too much lust, we have too much greed, we have too much hatred, and we have too much delusion. And our job as a Buddhist is to change our lust into love, to change our greed into generosity, our hatred and anger into loving kindness and compassion, our delusion into wisdom. (coughs) We can change the world one person at a time, but it starts with the inside, not with the outside, according to Buddhism. Yes? Why would you go to ask
1: God for
0: suffering for all people if it starts in the visual? Well, a Buddhist wouldn't. A Buddhist wouldn't. But, you know, there are a lot of really good Christians out there, and others, who would petition God to end human suffering because they are affected by it too. If their parents or or children or friends are dying of cancer, they don't want that to happen. You know, they would want divine intervention if that's possible. One of the things I do is I'm at UCLA Medical Center. I, I give presentations to chaplains and stuff. And I tell you when you go into those hospitals and see how much suffering occurs there, dying, you know, and getting well and then not getting well and wow, I'm going Why, why, why? And when I walk in, I might be able to say, hey, I can't help you with your life, but I can help you with your suffering. That You don't have to suffer with terminal cancer. You don't have to suffer if you're homeless. You don't have to suffer if you don't have a place to go eat. Yeah, exactly. And we just have our own way of doing it. And so what would we suggest to a person? Say, say a person is homeless and, and wants to end their suffering. What would we say to them? We'd say, well, the first thing you need to do is follow the five precepts. Absolutely. That's, very, that's the foundation of all Buddhist practice. Not to take life. Not to take what is not given. Not to indulge in sexual misconduct. Not to lie. Not to consume intoxicants. That's the start. After that, you do your meditation practice. The, the job for a Buddhist is to transform their consciousness to literally transform their consciousness into something else. And meditation practice and the five precepts allow a person to do that. Now, a person can be homeless, a person can be hungry, but a person doesn't have to suffer. And if you're not suffering, you may have more clarity and compassion about yourself and others to find an answer, find a solution to the problem. But if you're thinking of yourself as being the victim and everybody's against you and why can't God help me... I'm thinking that's a big road, a big hill to climb. And I, yes.
1: Personally, you need to know something in order to overcome it. Without knowing that, how would
0: you how to overcome You know, I feel the exact same way. There was a saying, "I'll know it when I see it." Well, I don't think so. I think it's, "I'll see it when I know it." I don't think we can see things without knowing them first. You know. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but there's this idea of concept. Like if I didn't know this was a desk or a chair, and I I just look at it and see this form, and I go, whoa, what's that? What do you call that? Oh, that's a desk. I'm thinking, oh, that is so cool. And that must be a desk over there. Oh, yeah. So now I know it. Now I can see it. You know? And I think it sort of works that way. So what we would do is we, we would say a person needs to take responsibility. We do have other power in Buddhism, That's another story. But this is early Buddhism, and this is self-power. What do I need to do to make my life better? What do I need to make the lives of others better? And a Buddhist would say, blah, 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 blah. Five precepts, meditation, wisdom. (coughs) Ultimate reality in Buddhism is the interconnection and interdependence of all phenomena. You are not alone in this. Everybody is connected to you, and they are with you. And as more you succeed, the more they'll succeed. I I like that idea. So we can never turn our heads and say, it's not my problem, it's not me. It's always our problem. It's always me. We are not separate, according to Buddhism. Yeah? Um,
1: For Buddhism, could you think of any uh, problems with Buddhism or any uh, issues in life that Buddhism cannot resolve for you?
0: Absolutely. Are there any things in life that Buddhism can't resolve for you? Finding a girlfriend. (laughs) <laughs> don't ask Buddhism to help you with that. Finding a really good job, probably not. Finding a skillful job, yeah. One of the things in the Eightfold Path is is, is right livelihood. How do I make a living and decrease suffering in the world? So Buddhism can help you do that, but it can help you make a million dollars. know, Though there are Buddhists who have a million dollars, but not because of Buddhism. And so there are those kind of things, you know? I, I, and if you're having relationship problems, go to a counselor. Don't learn meditation. It takes years. Your relationship will be over by the time you get it figured out. You know? So, yes? Um, I like what you said about if you do not suffer, something about knowing yourself. Can you repeat that again, please? So, you know... You were
1: talking about the death and not knowing and you not seeing it and saying you know
0: it. Okay. Gosh, well, maybe if I listened to what I had to say, I could say it again. But sometimes I get so into the present moment, I just don't pay attention to what I'm saying. Okay, well, thank you. I, I, I wish you would have at that point, because I don't know. I don't know. Were you talking about like, if you're not born? Oh, yes. Okay, nirvana, if you're not born. It, it, well, okay, yeah, we suffer primarily because we're born. So if we're not born, we don't have to get old, we don't have to get sick, we don't have to die. And 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 so that's the deal. So our goal is to exist without being born, and we call that nirvana at one level. Yes, we, and I'll go back over here again.
1: Uh, I, I have a question about the females. Does any females take a role in this religion? What do
0: you think? Females, like are females equal in Buddhism? Yes. Is that a good question? Uh, okay, they are, they aren't equal in Buddhism. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But but let me explain why they're not equal in Buddhism. Buddhism is a patriarchal religion. Is Christianity patriarchal? Yeah, I think most religions now are patriarchal. But at one time, a lot of religions were matriarchal, so women were at the top of the heap. This is a story of the first nun in Buddhism. Uh, the Buddha, when he was born, his birth mother died seven days later, and the king had married sisters which was appropriate at that time. So the other sister took to raising the future Buddha. Well, at the age of 29, the Buddha left home. He left the palace, he left his parents, he left his family, and went to find the answer to suffering. When the king died, the queen had no men in her life. Now, this was a different time, and so I'm just a messenger. This was a different time in the world. And so if you didn't have a man in your life, you didn't have security. So the queen sought out the Buddha and said, Can you ordain me? Uh, I don't have any way to support myself. And, and this would be um, a chance for me to reach my full potential as a human being. And the Buddha said, No, I can't. There is no woman who was ordained at this time. And if I ordain you, it might invalidate my teachings, and my teachings are too important. Well, can you imagine how she must have felt? She raised this young lad when he couldn't do anything for himself. She had been the wife of the king, and now she was being turned down for wanting to be ordained. She followed him to the next village and presented him with the same question, can you ordain me? And he gave the exact same answer. And she was so disappointed, she sought out Ananda, his right-hand monk, his attendant, also his cousin, and explained the situation to Ananda. And Ananda said, I'll take care of it for you. Ananda approached the Buddha in the third village and said, why can't you ordain your stepmother as a nun? And the Buddha went through the same story, explaining that his teachings were too important to be questioned. And then Ananda said something remarkable. Can a woman achieve nirvana? And the Buddha said, yes, of course. Well, why can't a woman be a nun? At that moment, his stepmother became the first nun in Buddhism. And she has written poems that you can read in the Buddhist canon. There's a whole section of the poems of the nuns called the Terigata, and it's an amazing thing to read. So, it took a while, but to become a nun in Buddhism, she needed to accept more vows than a man. There were some vows that only nuns were to keep. And if a monk was ordained one day and a nun ordained ten years, the monk would have authority over the nun. Not fair, but this is a long time ago. If a nun, a Buddhist nun, were to only keep her vows, she would have less vows than the monk. Which leads me to believe that the nuns are a bit more skillful than the monks. But because it's an old tradition, she had to accept the monks' vows as well. When Buddhism came to America a little over 100 years ago, the the evolution of Buddhism went into high gear. And there is a certain equality now that's demanded between amongst the monks and nuns. Not expected, but demanded. And so you'll see American Buddhism evolving in a very special way when it comes to gender issues. Was that a good answer? Yes. Well, <laughs> you yes. have to ask the Jews. They're the ones that started it. That, you know, I, really, when you think about it, and maybe Professor Park can can talk about that later. But you had many different deities in the world, and then the Jews found the one God, and the, and the Jews encouraged literacy. You know, people had to learn to read, and wow, did that change the world! So now we have this monotheism, and it turns out he's always referred to as he. You know, bad for the matriarchal religions. And he's the most powerful. And we've come to understand that one, again, is the best. That we seek, as a culture sometimes, uniformity over diversity. Because we think that is the, the, um, the best way to live, if we're all the same. If we all speak the same language and shop at the same store and drive the same cars, how wonderful would this life be? We'll all think the same way so we can relate to each other in a very special way. And, And Buddhism never went there. Buddhism says there is no such thing as one in the universe. There is simply many that are connected. And when I came across that concept, I saw this. I saw Buddhism was allowing me to have diversity and unity, but not uniformity. It never encouraged uniformity. But it said, even if you can't see any similarities in the person next to you, you are still connected to them, whether you know it or not. And I like that idea. So you have to go back to your early Christian studies to find out why one became so important. Thank you. Yes.
1: Yes. And also, can uh, can can, can someone that reaches nirvana fall out of
0: nirvana? Okay. Two good questions. Can anybody, even if they're not a Buddhist, achieve nirvana? Yes. In the early Buddhist tradition, there's something called a silent Buddha. This is someone who, with no practice and no understanding, achieves nirvana, but can't explain it to anybody and may not even know what happened. So we have that category in early Buddhism. Um, It is said that once you achieve nirvana, you can't fall out of it. There are four stages. One is the stream-enterer, the once-returner, the non-returner, and the fully enlightened arahant, or nirvana person. Uh, When you achieve that fourth level, you can't fall out of it. If you're a stream-enterer, you have seven more lifetimes to go before you achieve nirvana. If you're a once-returner, you have one more lifetime to go as a human being to achieve nirvana. If you're a non-returner, you will achieve nirvana after you die in this lifetime. If you're an arahant, you are someone who achieves nirvana while they're still alive and goes into pari nirvana, nirvana after death, when they die. So we have those categories. So suppose
1: you reach nirvana at like 35 years old. Yep. And then maybe like at you know, 45 years old, you've been in nirvana for 10 years. Um, say your mom died or you get diagnosed with or something like that, you would still be in nirvana despite all You wouldn't feel suffering really because
0: you've already reached nirvana. Okay, that's a really good question. Say you have achieved nirvana at 35 and at 45 your mom dies. And because you have achieved nirvana, would you feel suffering? And the answer would be no. You wouldn't suffer. But let me explain what suffering is because we really haven't gotten there yet. Suffering is wanting things to be different than they are. And, and that's like if you have a Honda and want a Ford, you will suffer.
1: <laughs>
0: you know? So suffering is optional, pain isn't. Will there be a pain? Will there be a pain when your parents die? Probably so. There will be psychological pain, there might even be physical pain, because they're the ones that brought you into this world. You know, it was them and your karma that got you here. So you'll probably be very sad and you might even cry. And, and do Buddhists cry? They, Of course they do. A the very famous Zen master was crying because one of his students died. And the other students were so confused. But, but Master, why are you crying? You said that life is just an illusion. And the Zen master thought for a moment and said, but life is the greatest illusion of all. So that sadness doesn't necessarily translate into suffering, because you don't, you understand that that's the nature of life, that everything is born, has to die, and you cry, and then you go on to the next thing. Does that make sense, sort He of? see Okay, good. Yeah. So we're not we're not animatrons, you know. As Buddhists, I, you know, like these Nirvana guys are like you know robots going around and not being affected. They're, they're, they're simply seeing everything as being perfect just the way it is. And, and that's really hard. And, did they, and would they want to change something? Probably not. But they want to change the people in the situation, but not the situation itself. So Buddhism doesn't necessarily take a systemic approach to the world's ills. Catholics do. Catholics have a whole series of organizations. The Catholic Worker. Out there helping the homeless and the hungry. It's so cool. They're taking a systemic approach and, and Buddhism oftentimes one person at a time. All systems are flawed, according to Buddhism. Yeah? What's the story behind the Dalai Lama? The story behind the Dalai Lama. How much time do we have, Professor Parr? Uh
1: well we've got five. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, no, 15,
0: minutes. Fifteen minutes. So the class ends at right. eleven yeah. thirty? Okay, good. Just so I can get it. End, we stop at 11.30, okay. You go on and I get to leave, okay. So, um, the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is the head of one of the four Buddhist traditions in Tibet. There were four Buddhist schools in Tibet. The Dalai Lama is the head of one of those. The Dalai Lama is said to be the reincarnation of the great compassion Bodhisattva. He is said to be that. He has denied that when he is asked who you are, he says, I am a Buddhist monk. The thing that makes the Dalai Lama special is not only was he the head of one of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism, he was also the head of a country at the same time, Tibet. Which, of course, has changed now. It was the reincarnation of what? Uh, the uh, great Bodhisattva of Compassion, sometimes known as Kuan Yin and that's what's said of him. He doesn't say that of himself. So that's why he's sort of unique. He's a very good spokesman for Buddhism as well. You know, he's, he's got great wisdom and compassion. He like a well, he's the leader of one of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Is he like the Pope? No way. No. We're, we, Buddhism is more like Protestants when it comes to that. We don't have a central authority. So it's every temple for themselves. You know, Yeah.
1: Is the reincarnation of the great... Uh, who was he, exactly? I mean, I understand he's a leader. And yes. But I mean, what's so special about him besides that? Or is it just
0: well, they, if you ever watch the movie Little Buddha, it's dramatically depicted that some old uh, Buddhist monks went and found him and gave him some tests, and he passed all the tests. So he knew, or they knew he was the reincarnation. Now, earlier I said rebirth instead of reincarnation, Tibetan Buddhism is an exception to that. Tibetan Buddhism has reincarnation in its model, but the other two schools of Buddhism, Mahayana and Theravada, don't. So um, is Buddhism diverse? Absolutely. Do we agree on everything? Absolutely not. But that's just like everything in life, I suppose. Huh? Okay. What
1: would be a, a good layperson, uh, a book for a layperson
0: Uh, Well, I would recommend going to buddhabooks.info and looking at a variety of free books that you can download. And most of them are geared towards people who are just coming into Buddhism, wanting some answers, wanting to sort of decipher the code, if you will.
1: And what's your favorite koan?
0: What is my favorite Uh, koan? Koan? I don't have a koan. I, I, I don't do that practice. I do samatha meditation. I do tranquility meditation. I leave that up to the experts. Let them figure it out. You know, I'm just happy to wake up in the morning <laughs> and have a place to go. <laughs> yeah? I mean the
1: term in, uh, you said those four stages.
0: That, you know, stream yes, uh, stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, Arahant. They actually have certain characteristics And and you would look at the characteristics. Um, The stream enterer, seven more lifetimes. um, You lose your faith in rites and rituals. That's one of the aspects that you realize rites and rituals don't work. Uh, That that uh, what does work is is what you do, say, and think. You know. So that's one of the things. Uh, Getting past the self image idea. Getting past the idea of you are that person. No, no. I, I still look in the mirror and see somebody, so it's, which just makes me happy. You know, <laughs> when I look in the mirror, I don't see anybody. Uh, it'll be, I'll be maybe close to enlightenment, but I won't have any place to go or anybody to be. You know, who are you when you're nobody? I guess it's more what you do than who you are, ultimately, in Buddhism. I'm real
1: interested in, in uh, your, your talk at the monastery. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, okay, to, to go further, uh, the uh, second round of uh, talks at, um, in Collegeville at St. John's Abbey were well, how do Catholic monks stay celibate, what are their practices, and how do Buddhist monks stay celibate, what are their practices. And what, what, what came to light there was the Catholics had a lot of old practices that didn't seem to work very well. Like if, Like if a Catholic monk in the old days, in the 50s, was a little lustful, He was encouraged to do some physical exercise, read a book, change his state of mind that way. And sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, The Buddhists, on the other hand, were sort of more encouraged just to sit with it, watch it arise, exist, and pass away. Mind states, do I have to be that mind state? Or is it optional? Do I have a choice when lust arises? or, Or am I a prisoner of lust? sounds like a good song, Prisoner of Lust. And, and then the third part was, what happens if you break your vow? What happens if Catholics break their vow of celibacy? What happens if Buddhists break their vow of celibacy? Well, a Buddhist, if, if they break their vow of celibacy, are immediately ousted. They can no longer be a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist nun, and they have no recourse in this lifetime. They have to wait till the next lifetime to sign up again. And even if nobody knows that you broke that vow, you still are not ordained any longer. Now, the Catholics, a little different. The Catholics have something called forgiveness. (laughs) And so a lot of times they're not kicked out. And I was just, uh, I had enough gumption to say, why don't you kick these guys out? I mean, let them be Catholics, but why keep them as clergy? Because apparently they've got some issues that they haven't resolved in this lifetime. Well, we don't do that, they said. We don't do that. But forgiveness, redemption, that's part of the Catholic tradition. So it's interesting for me to sit with the Catholics, and I'm sure it was interesting for the Catholics to sit with the Buddhists and see some of the similarities, but see some of the differences. You know, Is one better than the other? Absolutely not. One is just different than the other. And in the process of dialogue, conversation, and sharing, we come to a deeper understanding of each other and the challenges we have. Did you have a question? Yeah. Um,
1: so so if you have a month, you do it that way?
0: Yes, in a manner of speaking. Right. They Yeah, you know that's a really a good question. Like, if you broke your, your celibacy vow in this life, and then were reborn in the next life and wanted to be, you know, a monk, would you have any indication that you might have, you know, broken that vow in a past life? Um, maybe. What? What is? It? They have all these drugs now for these guys that you know, after a certain age, they have problems and stuff. Maybe that's the karmic consequence in this lifetime that you can't have sex <laughs> because you have some physical dysfunction now. You know? I don't think it works quite that way. I, I don't because, see, the, the, the person who broke the vow is not the person that's being reborn. And that may sound rather odd, but if you look at yourself when you were nine years old and you look at yourself today, it's a different person. That little nine-year-old is dead. Been long buried. But there's a causal connection between that person and the person that stands here. So if, if it's that dramatic in just this one lifetime, you can imagine how dramatic it is with a past lifetime to try to see the causal connection between this one moment in this life and that next lifetime. See what I'm sort of saying with that? Okay, yeah. Yes? has abortion like say like three months
1: pregnancy?
0: Yeah. Mm. Well, that's a, it, and it's interesting the way you put that too because you didn't say what what's the consequence of having abortion. You said what's the consequence of the the fetus yeah. when it's killed. And and it, it was killed because of those five things, you know, that I talked about earlier, the five niyamas. Um, sometimes it's just the um, people. Have looked at it in an overly simplistic way and said it 's just the fruition of some past karma happening and and now you know uh, they 're gone and it's time to be born again i 'm often amazed at how many good people die young and how many jerky people live to be really old i 'm thinking why what 's the deal and and so i 'm not sure if we could say that um, It's a good rebirth or a bad rebirth because it was an abortion, you know, the the next lifetime. I'm not that skillful yet in understanding the nuances of life and death, according to Buddhism. But good question. Wow. Yeah. So it, it can be really heavy when you start to use your religion to define who you are or give meaning to the world around you. It can really get heavy. And I think it requires all of us to have a deeper understanding of our religion. Uh, if we're really good at our religion, it will change us. We will not change it. And I find a lot of people want to change their religion. And some people want to be half Buddhist and half Catholic. And I don't think it works. So let your religion change you, and you'll be amazed at what happens. And having said that, I brought my harmonica with me today. Because I know Professor Para loves it when I bring my harmonica. I find sometimes talking about suffering and all the difficult topics I end up speaking about, people get depressed. And they leave the room and they just got this sour look on their face, like, what is life worth living anymore or what? And so I have found by playing a little music, people can smile again and life seems that much better. So here's a little music um, from a C harmonica. you yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, 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 Reverend Kusala will be here for a few minutes to come and ask questions. And uh, don't worry. Uh, read a part that's on Hinduism and Buddhism. And we're going to have a film on,
0: on... Well, that's it. That was my talk at Cal Poly Pomona to a comparative religions class in 2007. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free eBooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.